Hello, ETs and Earthies. This is Tiffany Hopkins here on Unknown Unknown with my second conversation about the trickster and the paranormal with its author, George Hansen. So before I get into our conversation, I just want to give a little overview of the concept of disenchantment. Our reading this week was chapter eight, Weber's concept of disenchantment, which is basically the removal of magic from a society that comes from the process of rationalization. Rationalization being a huge many thousand year trend of social organization that happens in the shift from hunter-gatherer to agricultural to industrial societies. When we have moved from living on the land uh, with a lot of influence from our our environment, our immediate environment, um, having to move and live according to what is happening around us uh, to where we are now, a lot more stability, a ton of structure, hierarchy, social roles, well-defined roles. Um, and in that process, a lot of the dependence on magic, the interest in magic, and uh, at this point, actively uh, repressing magic happens. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about why and the effects of that today. And if you are looking for some more details, check out chapter eight. Uh, otherwise, here we go. So I guess we can just jump into disenchantment, if that sounds good to you. If the, I, no, I was also, no, that, that's, yeah. no, that sounds good. Okay. The, the quote that you put into the book, the disenchanting effect of routine on everyday life in industrial society is a reality I've absolutely noticed in my life. I've spent but I've also spent a lot of time in less industrial societies and like trying to be less within industrial society myself. Um, and I've found that the key is that last phrase, the industrial society phrase, like it's not part of human condition to be disenchanted. And even the most mundane activity could be totally magical when, for example, I'm doing it just for the joy of it or to explore or even stuff like just feeding myself, but not under the pressure because someone's paying me to. And so I'm wondering, do you think we can re-enchant ourselves, even if we're deep in this culture, um, a little bit with nature or, or with what, or is it, do you think it's possible? I, I think it's possible, <clears throat> uh, but not too effectively. What we're, I think current situation is there seems to be a growing centralization of power. Uh, I think that's one of the problems of capitalist society and the way our government is, especially today, we're seeing a real battle between central control in the federal government and state control, for instance. So there is a, and even a more global type of an agenda. Uh, there are, and I think this is what we are seeing with this growing bureaucratic type mindset where you have higher and higher levels of uh, organization and hierarchy. Uh, that is disenchanting and there is a reaction against that. And so I think what we're seeing is some kind of return to less organization, less central control. Uh, it's not so you can look at in the overall pattern 
with the hunter-gatherer societies where you've got many relatively <clears throat> uh, independent groups that have you know, fairly limited interaction as opposed. So those are the types of societies where you have more magical aspects. When you've got extreme hierarchy at multiple and multiple levels of hierarchy, that's going to be antagonistic to magic, except at some point that's got to break down. Uh, there will be some kind of rebellion. Right. It's so, so it makes so much sense because if they're in all these structures, imagine the power magic would need to disrupt something versus yeah. you know just wandering it, it, around. It, yeah, the there there is a need for the the un, the instability and the more more fluidity. And when you are told you can say this, you can't say that. There's much more attempt to control our language now. Uh, again, that is imposing order from a, a very high level in the, in the hierarchy. And I think there is a uh, rebellion against that. The, the language control especially is uh, a real mark of some type of almost totalitarian control. This question wasn't on here, but I'm thinking, and so you don't have to answer it, but we have this example of where magic exists more comfortably in the um, in hunter-gatherer societies, for example. Do we have many examples outside of maybe fiction where what's, where, what's happening to us um, makes sense or we've seen it before? Uh, it makes sense. I'd have to think about that. Yeah, uh, that's fine. Uh, it's it's a very good question. Uh, Maybe I'll pose it sure. to the group too. See if they have any ideas. Yeah, I'd have to. Again, I have to. I try to think in examples, and it just takes a while to come up with examples. Yeah, so, definitely. Uh, we might come back to that. Okay, that sounds good. Um, uh, uh, small groups. Um, Sometimes the cult, cult groups might uh, be more, uh, with certain types of cults, I suspect you will find a little more magic there. Uh, it can be, there can be like a charismatic leader. Uh, I'd have to think that through, but I'm pretty sure that we, could, we can come up with some more examples. Uh, interesting. Yeah, I had a question for you about that is reading about um, the charismatic leaders is I had this feeling like I couldn't actually understand it in our, our context, in our culture, the charismatic leaders are a little pathologized, like um, cults and Trump and these things are, are considered sort of bad or controlling. Yeah. And, yes. And that doesn't seem like the natural definition. I'm wondering if you could like, can we understand it? <laughs> what am I? Oh, missing? Uh, oh, oh, charisma. Okay. Yes. Charisma. Uh, it's it's a it's very very interesting to look at the academic uh, literature on charisma, uh, because the, the, probably the primary resource or the primary uh, work on charisma can be is basically Max Weber's work. Max Weber 
is considered one of the founders of modern sociology, along with Emile Durkheim. Uh, and Weber is very, very explicit about pure charisma involving things like telepathy and miracle weather control and the like. He says something close to that in his book, Sociology of Religion on page two. So he directly understands charisma is related to supernatural or paranormal power. That is almost never mentioned in the sociological literature. Almost never. And I've got a number of books directly addressing charisma. And I go to Google Books, do a search on the word telepathy, never comes up. So there, the academic world especially ignores some very, very important aspects of charisma. In fact, I often say that the academic establishment is a product of and an agent for the disenchantment of the world. They don't want to acknowledge the reality of paranormal or supernatural phenomena. There, there is an in inherent antagonism there. The fact that it's consistently ignored, and I probably have 10 to 15 books with the, the title with charisma in the name. Virtually, I don't think any of them mention the paranormal uh, in relation to charisma and not telepathy. Wow, so that's so what's, a, yeah, what's left for charisma then? <laughs> well, when they talk about, you know, the personality or uh, they, they ignore that aspect. Well, they, it has a certain power, uh, a certain attractiveness, uh, but pure charisma. Uh, and in fact, I think Weber talks about, some of them talk about Francis and, and both Weber and Victor Turner, talking about liminality, use Francis of Assisi as an, uh, as an exemplar. And Francis of Assisi was known for, among other things, his miracles. That's not talked about today. So there is a more rationalized form of charisma. So if you've got dictators uh, or uh, powerful individuals, those are recognized as charisma. So, and there's also, they break some of the more modern work on charisma talks about, say, charisma of office. So if you've got a high status position, uh, if you've got like your president or CEO, you're, you're going to have more charisma simply because you hold that office. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely related to power. Mm -hmm. And powerful men, you know, attract a lot of... <laughs> They can have their choice of women. You just look around at Bill Clinton or Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so, so interesting because I I yeah. thought when I read that that part originally, um, I was really struck by this. This is like a place for people who don't aren't given uh, structural powers or, or societal powers. It's a place to get power somewhere else and almost uh not to say it's better or worse but more naturally like it's just like within you um and I started to imagine maybe it's it is not 
this thing that's endowed upon someone like we I think of it of like oh there's only very special charismatic leaders and there's not very many of them but what if it was a way for anybody without these um, other types of like given uh, or structural powers to to find power and it's not necessarily you have to be special you just have to try to access it well I, I think it comes from any group any group that's going to survive for any length of time is going to need some leadership and leadership itself will endow a certain amount of charisma and be unstable but i think charisma in is a sense is a property not of only the individual but also the group and it, in fact it requires i think some kind of group because you will never in the whole idea that we're all going to be equal and uh, have equal powers and equal opportunities, no, uh, that doesn't happen. Some people are much better at certain things than other things. And depending on the needs of the group, the people who can provide the leadership and the understanding and the knowledge of, will inherently have more power. And so what we ideally we make use of people's talents and abilities, and they should be placed in positions where they can be particularly effective and help the group. If you expect everyone uh, and every in, in a large group uh, of everyone from any group to be more successful or more effective leadership, uh, that's just not the case. There are certain people that will gravitate together, who will have certain uh, leadership and technical or, or other abilities that can benefit everyone. The whole idea that anyone uh, and everyone should be equal, no, that's not viable. You can have communitas, this feeling of equality and brotherhood, etc., for short periods of time. But for long periods of time, that will fall apart and will be disastrous. That makes so much sense. And you're making me think about like a quote from the t TV show Vikings, um, which I loved watching, that uh, power attracts, this might be from somewhere else originally, power attracts the worst and corrupts the best. And that that idea that it, it is the position as well as the individual. I, I totally, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. And it, 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 it can attract the worst, uh, no question. Uh, and that's why it's dangerous. You know, it can, it, but it can also be a force for, for great good. So here you've got the good, evil, the positive, negative, very close to each other. And that's why it has to be constrained and we have to uh, be careful with it because, you know, a, a bad leader can lead to absolute disaster to, for the group or the society mm. and very quickly. And that's why these structural forms of, of power, the other two forms, um, bureaucratic and um, hereditary, are those the other two? Uh, uh, I think a tr traditional, uh, traditional be like kingships, feudal lords, and the like. Mm -hmm. Why those two are useful? It keeps yes. keeps it yes. in check, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's such a it's a, easy for me personally to kind of 
whatever it is that has been <laughs> pushed out of our culture or is uh, somewhat um, looked down on, it's so easy for me to kind of glamorize it or make it seem like feel, or it feels like that's the best thing. Um, when in reality, it's, it's not, not, not period. Um, which I think is another thing you're sort of saying, but, uh, it's great to remember that we're using these and our, our society was built this way for a reason, even if maybe we went mm -hmm. a little too far in one direction. Yeah. 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 And if you look back at leaders in, of, and presidents of the U S uh, John Kennedy had enormous charisma, uh, Reagan did too. Uh, I guess FDR uh, would. Uh, so there are certain leaders people remember as more charismatic than others. And this is sort of related, but um, there was this this topic, or some the book said something about paranormal as vitality. I can think liminality uh, can be. Uh, most of something called what you call vitality and communitas for short periods. Uh, it can breathe life into uh, people and groups. Yeah, change can produce vitality, but also destruction. Yes, right. Which is why when we, we're trying to disenchant the world to make it more stable, and then we end up just yeah, it ossifies, it becomes yes. stagnant and decays, or yeah. too rigid, and things cannot move. And uh, here I found the quote, anti-structure, pure charisma, and supernatural phenomena are needed for the vitality of culture. Oh, okay. For, for the vitality, yes. To shake it up, uh, to allow change, uh, to allow different people to take power and the like. Otherwise, it becomes too rigid. Yeah, I, so, I oh, sorry, go ahead. So, so anti-structure uh, is one of the, uh, the synonyms of liminality. Uh, and there are a few others, anti-structure, uh, I have to think of, there's a couple other words that, a communitas, where everyone, there's a feeling of brotherhood and equality. And that can be very life-giving, but if it goes for too long, things will fall apart. You will not have order and structure. And so you need both the structure and the anti-structure. But the anti-structure can be very destructive. Uh, and we see in, say, medieval societies, there were a lot of carnivals and feasts of fools where things would be sort of turned upside down for a, for a few days. It'd be festivals. And people in the very high levels of society would mingle with the lower levels of society. And sometimes they would, there would even be mocking of the, the kings or the priests uh, during those festivals. And then, you know, a few days later, everything would be back to normal. But the people at the top would have more understanding of the people at the lower levels and vice versa. They would realize, OK, these guys, you know, we could have really worse people there. Like sometimes they would even have a mock king. The pauper would be king for a day. 
we said, okay, well, that's kind of fun, but hey, we really don't want that guy leading us long term. You know, for a while, it's kind of fun to contemplate. But no, sometimes we realize, okay, our society isn't perfect, but the way it is, it could be a lot worse. And hey, this is not so bad. So it it's a, these celebrations sort of affect our consciousness almost subliminally. We realize it, they're great fun for a while to, to make fun of uh, our leaders and the way things are, but maybe there's a good reason they are this the way they are. I've been I've been so fascinated by those types of events since I heard of them, which wasn't very long ago. Uh, and I think about what we have in our culture where you can get these tiny tastes of like what it's like to be really rich or really powerful. Like if you make a little extra money and go out to a really nice dinner and you get like mm-hmm. these little tiny tastes and it's always in your face on TV and just you just can always see that there is something else uh, that looks much, much nicer, but you don't get that real experience like what you're talking about happens when you're actually switching places. Mm-hmm. And it seems like it would be much more effective to really just do it and get uh-huh. that, get that experience. Cause otherwise we're in like a constant state of um, wishing or trying to, to get more. I mean, that's sort of uh, the, the <laughs> nature. No, this of- is hard to articulate. Yeah, mm-hmm. this is, but yeah, there is something about you know growth that is stimulated by change, and change can be very positive, but it can also be destructive. And so it's it's a fine line. And so these phenomena are, and these festivals and the like are constrained to certain periods. And people understood that you know you can have this anti-structure or this destabilizing for a while. But long term, you, uh, for the progress of society, you're going to need more stability than you, than anti-structure. Yeah, but it's sometimes big... the structure becomes pathological as well, and right. then, it has, then there has to be change. Right. Do you think there's like it's possible to find a balance, or do you think it's sort of constantly a process? Well, early... Well, earlier societies, you know, had regular festivals, you know, at the fall festivals, and you had things like Halloween uh, and Easter. So there were, I think it was more built into our culture uh, where there would be these kinds of celebrations and gatherings that kind of facilitated things. Today, we've got a pretty rigid bureaucratic society of Hopefully in democracy, if we have free elections and fair elections, you know, change can uh, be every four years electing a president. Now, if people no longer have trust in that kind of system, uh, there there will be problems. And today, certainly we're we're seeing that. Can we trust our elections? Because that's how we in our democracy are supposed to uh, allow for change. If that is uh, not happening, uh, things will go bad. Yeah, I think we've seen that. Um, yeah. Or now, I feel, now, I feel wh- that. Whether, whether you, yeah, whether you think the election was fair or not, 
about 50% of the country uh, is highly suspicious. That's really a dangerous situation. I wanted to ask you, and this isn't even a fair question. Do you think there's a way out? Like, do you think there's something we could do? Don't know. (laughs) That's beyond my pay grade. I I figured, but I was just like, (laughs) I'm just going to throw it out. This is something I think about a lot. And actually what you you asked before or what you said before made me think maybe we just need to get back into our actual, the actual holidays. Like we don't need to invent something new, just celebrate the holidays, how they actually were supposed to be celebrated maybe, and not what we do yeah, now. The, the, the problem we've got now is we've got a very, very stratified society. Uh, you've got, say, the political uh, class. You've got the billionaires that are in many ways running the elections. Uh, in academe, if you look, if you go to the universities, you see virtually no children, you see virtually no elderly people, you see virtually no working class. Those are, you know, you may be in the janitorial and the maintenance departments, but the people at the universities have virtually no social contact with those folks. Uh, you see very few people with any disabilities. Uh, so. And you see people who have had sort of the same kinds of education and certain kinds of mental skills. So what you're seeing is some of the more powerful groups in uh, our society are very, very isolated from others. Uh, You go to big corporate offices, you see almost no children. Again, you see uh, almost no elderly people. so you've got a very so people don't understand they don't rub elbows with they don't interact much with people outside their class so that causes problems too yeah and and so, we've also seen it with race and religion and all different I other, know, other things no, no no i i think religion it tries to bring more people together uh I think, you know, it doesn't, certainly in Christianity, there are certain churches that try to appeal to a a wide range of social class, Mm -hmm. but there are other religions that tend to be, to draw from particular classes. Mm -hmm. Pentecostalism as opposed to uh, mainline Protestantism. Uh, So there is that stratification there. Uh, race overall in our country, you know, it's certainly not perfect, but you go back 50 years, uh, I think we're a lot better off than we were. I, 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 you know, I've, I'm old enough to see there has been, been a dramatic change uh, in race relations. You know, it's, it's far from perfect, but compared to 50 years ago or 100 years ago, it, it's a lot better. Mm-hmm. Not and we're, even compared to two years ago, we're, we're, making a lot of changes or things are, yeah. things are mm-hmm. shifting really rapidly there. And yeah. and you're right. It is really focused. Like a lot of social change right now is feels kind of focused on race and we're talking less about class, but there is, there is still some conversations. Um, I feel like going on, people are starting to, to really notice that, you know, the billionaires are going to space and the rest of us can't pay for medical care. So that's, 
Yeah, right. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Capitalism has concentrated wealth. And when you've got this, such a high concentration of wealth, uh, that's dangerous. I want to talk about something a little simpler or um, maybe more fun. Not, not okay. to distract from the intensity yeah, no, that's good. of conversation, no, no. but yeah. I, mm-hmm. I wanted um, to talk a little bit about um, stories and uh, reading the this last week, I thought a lot about the difference between fiction and nonfiction and trying to think of examples where it was a considered a true story, but there was magic in there or you know, I, I thought about it from the context of mediumship. Um, and if I was to tell stories about my experience as a medium, could it be considered nonfiction or would it have to be fiction? And I just, um, it feels like maybe we need a new genre. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is an extremely interesting topic. And it opens doors to a lot of stuff. It's a little difficult to talk about, but I've been working on exactly this issue for the last few days. A guy named Brian Fentis published on his uh, blog uh, a critique of some of my stuff. And it's a very, very sophisticated uh, piece. Uh, It's it's something like Skunk Works blog. I forget just the exact uh, title. Uh, He's a professor of uh, English. I think he teaches literature. And we've been, he has challenged some of my ideas about what uh, uh, philosopher Jacques Derrida uh, has said. And a lot of people claim that Derrida is using the word magic and telepathy uh, in in metaphorical terms. And he talk, he's, he's got a book, Specters of Marx, he talks about ghosts. He mentions ghosts many, many times, several hundred times in the book. And the people in literature departments who draw upon Derrida say he is simply talking metaphorically. And I completely disagree with that. Derrida is talking about real spirits, real ghosts. And this is a very, very key issue here. So, and I've got a lot to say about this topic. So I'm hoping to have a, a fairly extended dialogue with Brian Sentis on this. In fact, I've got a, I owe him an email. So what you're raising here is really, really important. It's very subtle, different. The arguments are subtle in some, subtle in other ways. So <laughs> I'm particularly uh, impressed that you're raising this issue right now because it is very key to understanding the paranormal and supernatural. And, and I, I have I cannot, no idea. <laughs> I, 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 oh, no, no. It's, it's, you, you really hit a, a very, very important point. Um, and it's one I, you know, I am, I've been working on the last few days. And I will, this will probably take a lot of my effort uh, in the coming months but oh, well, uh, I can't wait to hear um, no it's it's yeah <laughs> so sentence, yeah yeah there's a uh, I've got a lot to say about that 
<laughs> but and I can't can't convey it uh, now. I, I, so I'm putting it in writing and trying to okay, can people right. understand this? I, so gr- great great question though, a really super question. Great. Well, and we will be still doing this reading group for till the first second half uh, or the first half of January next year. So maybe we'll still get a chance to read it uh, within this. Oh context. yeah. Okay, great, great. Yeah, so we can come back to that one. Yeah. I I um do a lot of writing for just because it's fun and uh, I've written some fiction and some some nonfiction. And I uh I feel like this is a for me an, an interesting prompt to try something in between because I never really have and uh I can I I couldn't even imagine it when I was thinking about this. Like what would that sound like what would the voice be like um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. although It'd be sort of schizophrenic almost right yeah <laughs> that's a, and and that's what you worry about as a person talking about these things not even putting them on paper and then putting your name on them and putting them into the world but just when i'm having conversations with people i kind of worry about that if i'm sounding too uh like i think it's true mm-hmm. yes <laughs> um, yes but I do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, our conversation right now is we're talking seriously about, about these things. Um, and the, the, the whole group is talking, you know, in a nonfiction tone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. And, and we're bringing in stories too. And, and I think that's, that's something that sometimes is missing in, in nonfiction um, and display like, but it, but it also the reason we're getting to the one of the reasons this book is so powerful is it talks about these things without needing stories and it's it's not that there aren't stories in there but there's something in a, my brain that wants sort of a a rational way to think about and explain things and you bring that to the table here oh good good uh yeah these are really intriguing they're intriguing, but they're also very off-putting and frightening to many people as well. Yes. Yeah, that's that's true. I always I'm in a little bit of a bubble here, obviously, in Lilydale. Yeah. And <laughs> I think a lot about what I call normalizing talking to the dead. And um because to me, I've gotten to this point where I just, it is normal to me and I can talk about it in an everyday voice and I don't have to like couch it in kind of certain language or um, yes, yes. anything really. And that's, mm-hmm. it's really powerful to have a place to, to be able to do that. I think more people are doing it, uh, is my impression. Uh, I might, you know, I'm sort of in a bubble too, but I'm seeing a greater openness. And if you look historically and you look at other cultures, look at the Far East, uh, I think even in China and Japan, veneration of ancestors is quite common. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's, I just got a book out of the library, Ghosts of the Tsunami, uh, about when the the Japan's disaster with the tsunami uh, uh, and how that affected their religion. It's, it's, I haven't read much of the book, but other cultures have understood the importance of venerating and communicating with the ancestors. 
Yeah, I feel culture. like that's a really important way in in our culture. Even that's that's how I started in the, this whole world. Really, that was mm-hmm. like my my gateway drug of like it's normal to, you know, research ancestry and and you know, even getting into having an altar for my ancestors, which yes, yeah, you know, and then and then all of a sudden here I am talking to the dead, which like publicly and you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of a big step um but yeah i think it's a great a great way in for people mm-hmm. i agree uh and this radically challenges the intellectual elite culture because intellectual elite culture denies that denies any efficacy of speaking to the dead yeah. it's all metaphor it's all fiction and fantasy mm-hmm. and there are reasons for that because these paranormal phenomena encounters with the deceased bring about a liminal situation that will destabilize the ordinary structure and the status it challenges the status of the people who are denying the reality of this if you look at PSYCOP, the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, now known as Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, the it is primarily, in fact, new scientists describe the group as white, male, and slightly geriatric. They identified that, I think, back in the 80s. So what you're seeing is sort of an upturning, an overturning, of some of the power structures. Yeah, I definitely didn't think anything about this stuff was was radical or disruptive till I started reading the book and understanding the, the yeah. And if you context. look at you look at the history of spiritualism, very very much involved with women's rights movements and abolitionism. In fact, the, some of the best scholarly writing on spiritualism focuses on that. Anne Brody's book came out, oh, I think, in 1989, Radical Spirits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and when I first started reading all that stuff, I, got, I was so sad for current spiritualism. I was like, ah, oh, we don't do anything like that anymore. And it wasn't until reading this book and some conversations I had this summer, and I realized maybe we are, and it's just, it's not so... Well, we're in the middle of it, first of all, so we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, well, if, if you look at, at, at Louisdale, who runs it? Women. Women right. are like 85% of the mediums, and you've mm-hmm. got women at the very top levels of the organization. That's true. I mean, most of the people here, just the community is mostly women, too, which is interesting. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. And I pointed out another aspect of uh, Louisdale and spiritualism. You look at where are the the main big religions are are headquartered in places like Rome and Jerusalem uh, uh, and in Mecca are, are are central locations. With spiritualism, it's out in Lilydale, out in the middle of no place. <laughs> it's not central for for anything. I, I can assure yes. you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And and that's the, one of the central locations for spiritualism. Yeah, it turns things upside down. Mm. It, it's liminal. Mm-hmm. 
It is. It is. And do you, I know you're involved in the, the, um, UFO and an alien world a little more. And I'm wondering what it's like over there. And if, if people are, if the same thing is happening or more people comfortable talking about it. Um, oh, 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 really oh. It, it, there, there, there's, you know, it, it, it's, it is huge. The, I have been following the UFO topic since the mid 1980s and there is nothing that compares to what's going on today. There is enormous interest from religious angles, from intelligence agency angles, from just technology issues. Uh, yeah, there is, it's a huge change and very, very rapid. The most, one of the most interesting things is the UFO topic in, in, especially in the government arena, very heavily overlaps with the psychic spying program. If you look at the same people, the people involved with the UFO programs in the government, a lot of those were involved with with parapsychology, psychic spying, and the like, and were for decades. So that's uh, and the major funders of UFO research, particularly James S. McDonald, McDonald Douglas, he supported it. Robert Bigelow. Both of those also supported research into psychic phenomena. And is that As the intelligence and the intelligence agencies too very very heavily involved with the UFO phenomena? And that was the one aspect of one of the only basically the only part of the government that had a strong interest in parapsychology. Is it still happening today? Like the is it being funded? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, it's heavily. Uh, well, the. The UFO research is very heavily funded clandestinely. It, you know, the government has been probably, I don't know, there's lots of speculation, but a lot of money has gone into that, for sure, almost certainly. Wow. That's amazing. I'm super we, interested we, in we, aliens we, and not involved at all, so I, I'm very curious. <laughs> but no, but you, you've got all sorts of conspiracy theories going on. Uh, it is a, an exceptionally liminal uh, domain. And I know there, we have whole weeks dedicated to that, so I won't go any more into it. I've just, I'm okay. so curious. <laughs> and I, I don't want to um, take up your whole morning. Uh, it's been, we're, we're coming up on the hour. So um, I want to just check if you have any other thoughts coming up, any uh, words of wisdom for people reading this uh, about disenchantment this week um, before uh, we I do have a, an, an article on, I think it's on my academia.edu page on rationalization secularization uh, I still stand by that and there even in, in religion there was there's a, something called demythologization by Rudolf Boltman and he talks <laughs> about much in the same strain so for people who have a strong interest in religion the the terms secularization and demythologization uh, might be of interest so those are only things i can come up with off the top of my head right now great i'll add those to the show notes and to the um like the the notes for this recording and then the um to the email to to everybody for saturday great Yes. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks, George.
Okay, well, thank you again, and uh, we'll talk soon.